Since you all enjoyed my Mental as Anything reference, I needed another classic rock anthem for this month's economic snapshot, and who does it better than the oils? The rich get richer, the poor get the picture. The coronavirus recession is about to split in two. Speedy recovery for some, if indeed you even suffered financially. Long-term lingering woes for many others. Keep watching to make sure you're on the side you want to be. I'm Jacob Aldrich, this is Don't Waste a Good Recession, economic snapshot number 18, designed for small and medium-sized business owners. As always, we look at these four economic indicators, active COVID-19 cases in those three countries, share market performances over the last month and since the bottom of the pandemic. We look at latest unemployment figures and the latest GDP figures, which for all of my Australian viewers are going to be especially timely as today's newspapers are focused solely on those GDP figures that are a lag indicator. They're behind the times, but you, of course, as a Don't Waste a Good Recession fan, are always making sure you're well ahead. The first of those lead indicators that we keep an eye on, active COVID-19 cases. And remember how in July, Two months ago, I said we would probably look back on June 2020 as the month when we chose the economy over our health. And the time since then, that has absolutely proven to be true. Yep, it is now maintain. Maintain the pandemic, try and keep it under control. Although, as you can see, that just means slowing down the growth. It's not even going backwards. 2% growth week on week in the UK, the US, global. You'll see those question mark figures for the UK. If you're new to Don't Waste a Good Recession, the UK government has made a point of changing uh, and hiding some of their figures. It's frustrating. We're getting a little bit of an idea uh, around some of the data. The key thing with COVID-19, now that we know globally, it's not looking at any kind of eradication until we either get a vaccine or the disease evolves to be less fatal and we learn to live with it. Instead, you need to think local. Uh, and since most of my viewers like me are here in Australia, uh, Australia is the extreme example of thinking locally. We had a clear second wave. Almost all of that was in one state, Victoria. Uh, now cases compared to the previous week, down by almost a quarter compared to the previous month, which was the peak of the second wave uh, in early August, down by over a third. Deaths as you can see in that second table, are slower to change. Deaths obviously lag active cases. And so both of those are up uh, and quite significantly over the month, but the cases are trending downwards and we would expect deaths to do the same. Now, the Victorian economy, especially in central Melbourne, is hurting. I'm barely a two hour flight away uh, with state borders closed to Victorians up here in Queensland. I'm eating out at restaurants. Uh, we're even debating how many tens of thousands of people are going to be allowed to attend the Brisbane based AFL Grand Final. Back in February, March, when the pandemic became officially a pandemic, we kind of assumed these lockdowns were going to continue until the disease got eradicated. Clearly, that wasn't the case. 
Not everybody out there like me has a Guinness World Record for non-stop movie watching and so the Netflix fatigue kicked in. Whether it was that caution fatigue, that feeling that surely we had done enough, whether it was conspiracy theories or whether it was economic desperation, we were compelled to reopen economies. Had we had a stricter lockdown, undoubtedly hundreds of thousands of lives would have been saved. But of course, I say that with hindsight and there are consequences to any business decision. We shouldn't be surprised. Day to day, even in the before times, most of us push ourselves too hard. We put our health at risk in order to chase our income, our jobs, or our business. So why would we act any differently in a global pandemic with less than a 5% case fatality rate? Sorry, Pete, back to my main point, a two-track recovery. In many countries, that's going to mean that some cities or regions are hit harder by COVID-19 lockdowns than others. And as a result, the economic fortunes of businesses in those regions are going to be harder hit. But for the most part, the two-track recovery actually looks at the type of business you run and the type of work that you do. This is some research from 538. This US-based research into who is most vulnerable economically to the coronavirus looked primarily at whether people could work from home. Could they continue earning money even in a lockdown or in self-imposed protection or shielding? As you can see, the more money somebody earns, the more likely it is that they're going to be able to either work from home or take paid leave to ride out a short-term or a long-term storm. The poorest workers are those that are most affected. And if we look at the two key safety nets, full-time work and benefits like paid vacations and sick leave, plus having years of experience since older workers normally have more secure jobs as well as personal savings. And you can see that the industries most impacted by COVID, services like hospitality, sales like retail, transportation jobs. These are those industries with the highest percentage of part-time and young employees. We're all in the same stormy seas, but if you're a 22 year old working part-time in a retail store, you're paddling around in a very different boat to a 45 year old finance manager on 200 grand a year. Yes, Pete, we get it, we get it. So your business, did you review these questions that I asked you last month? How likely are you to be affected by the COVID-19 active cases? And again, at the beginning of this pandemic, February, March, the belief was that because every human could contract and die from COVID, that every business would be impacted. We now know that that is just simply not the case. Our second key indicator is share market performance. And if we use the March bottom as our baseline across the US, Australia and the UK, you can see that the US has continued to outperform even as those markets have been a little bit flat through the month of August. The Dow Jones is now barely three points off its record all time highs. And in fact, you may have seen these kind of headlines through the month of August about the S&P 500 closing at a record high. So why do we use the Dow Jones and not the S&P? 
The S&P is definitely a better representation of the overall US economy, but the Dow Jones has a much longer history. And through the Great Recession, the GFC, that history, learning from that, looking at some of the comparisons was of great value to the presentations that I was running around the world and to the many business owners who came to them. So how does the S&P work? How come it's hit a record high, whereas other indices like the Dow Jones have not? What's up, guys? Let's ask Graham Stephan. For an index like this, the index is weighted by a company's total market value. So the more valuable a company is, the more influence that company has on the entire S&P 500. Something like this is really, really important to understand because out of the entire S&P 500, five of the largest companies make up more than 20% of its entire value. If we then break this down even further based on the category, we could see that the categories which were hit the hardest due to the shutdown, like travel, hospitality, and restaurants, only make up a small part of the entire index, or about 25%. So even though 25% of the S&P 500 got hit really hard, the other 75% is doing well, or even better than well, and that is causing the stock price to go up. Okay, so the Dow Jones only looks at 30 companies, whereas the S&P 500, as you might guess, covers 500. In that sense, the Dow Jones is not as representative. It is also not as tech heavy. So it hasn't benefited as an index from the high growth of some of those companies like Amazon and Microsoft. Now you might remember back in episode 14, economic snapshot 14 that I did in June, I talked about how the S&P was approaching its previous high, the Dow Jones, the FTSE, and to a lesser extent, the ASX 200 were getting close. And I talked about this ceiling. At that point, the S&P got close and then dropped 6% in a day. And I talked about how that ceiling of the previous high might be a barrier. It might be a point that we bounce up against a few times and that that was going to be quite telling. If it burst through that ceiling to all-time record highs and managed to maintain that, then that was going to tell us something about the Ford economy versus bouncing off the ceiling and eventually potentially going into some kind of panic or the longer economic downturn in the markets. So the S&P hit a record high. Did it manage to burst through that ceiling? Boy, did it. And it has sustained its position above there. The Dow Jones, as I said, 3% off. We're still keeping an eye on that, keeping an eye on some of the other countries. We'll talk about that in a minute. But what does that mean, not only for investments, but for your business and the economy? Again, we can clearly see a two-track recovery. Let's have a look at the Phantom stocks, those top six companies, Facebook, Apple, Alphabet, Amazon, Netflix, and Microsoft. Those companies that alone constitute such an enormous part of the S&P 500. And if we look at the bounce back from the February and March declines, you can see that those six companies collectively have exceeded their previous record highs. They are at record highs. If you just take the other 494 companies in the S&P 500, we take out just those top six, and we're barely halfway back to the recovery. And if we look at the world stock markets, excluding the US, taking out some of those companies, and they are disproportionate. Apple alone is now worth more money than the entire FTSE 100. And so the global economy outside the US, outside of those US tech stocks, is even more uh, still in that bear market, has recovered even less. 
So for most companies, most countries, we're still in a bear market. But undoubtedly, many companies are riding high. And this isn't just a tech stock thing. My target market for these audiences, these conversations are businesses like my clients, my advisory clients, small and medium private owned companies with primarily 12 to 96 staff, but anywhere from two to 500 staff. And in that sweet spot, you don't have to be Apple to be doing well. Indeed, most of my clients right now practically printing money because of how strong they were coming into this recession and how well they've managed to respond. And I'm currently looking for two more clients. So if your money printing machine hasn't quite worked the way you want it to, let's chat. So what does this all mean? Does this mean that the coronavirus recession is done and dusted? So I ask, what will crash the economy? Wider lockdowns? Absolutely. But for the most part, it looks like that ship has sailed. We're going to do local lockdowns, but the chances of more severe widespread lockdowns across entire countries again are fairly remote. Deflation is one of the big things that could cause these economies to crash. If holding on to your money suddenly makes it more valuable than investing it or than spending it, the opposite to inflation, then that could create a risk. That could mean money getting pulled out of the markets and the markets going south in a, a bit of a downward spiral. But the governments are focused on inflation, creating inflation, seeing that as positive. Many of the government stimulus packages, like in Australia, JobKeeper and JobSeeker, which we had talked about ending in September and October, have been extended. And even in the US, where Democrats and Republicans can't agree on how many trillion dollars to pump into the next round of fiscal policy, the Federal Reserve has stepped into that gap. And they've actually created a different monetary policy, loosening their inflation guidelines in an effort to juice up the economy and allow for runaway inflation. As an aside, I often get asked how governments are going to repay the enormous debts that they're going into right now. And the answer is inflation. If we managed 3% inflation over 50 years, then the government debt, say $1 trillion, would stay the same. But because the value of money was decreasing due to that inflation, that $1 trillion would be repaid with the equivalent of just $220 billion. If you stretch that out to 100 years, it would be repaid with the equivalent of just $52 billion. With patience and inflation, and governments have all the time in the world, they could manage to get a 95% discount or more on repaying that debt. So governments want inflation. You know who else benefits from inflation? People who have assets, people who already have wealth. If you've got a mortgage, if you've got money in the stock market, if you have your business, other asset classes, inflation is going to work in your favor. If you're a 22 year old working part-time in retail or hospitality, and you're struggling to make ends meet, Inflation means that your paycheck is getting smaller every week. Cue the song, Pete. So short of a solar flare wiping out electricity grids worldwide and taking tech stock valuations with them, it's going to take a reversal of one of two major government policies to crash the economy. 
If we go into the northern winter and we have another huge wave of new cases or perhaps even a mutation of COVID-19 to make it more fatal to more people or at least more voters, then governments may decide to reverse the easing or the localization of lockdowns that have been going on. That could have a wider impact on the economy, particularly if it's an unexpected reversal. Similarly, governments might look at the stimulus packages that they've been pumping out, the unprecedented size of fiscal policy that they've created, and they may turn off the money printing machine. They may decide they've created enough debt for future generations. That, for my cynical self, is, is not the sort of thing that governments tend to think about. They tend to think about the next election, not the next generation. But one of those two factors would definitely have an impact on the economy, especially because it would be so unexpected. Or, and this is the known unknown, we could actually have in the background the looming supply side recession that I've been talking about since April. So a supply side recession has been our biggest risk really since the COVID-19 coronavirus kicked off in China, the manufacturing hub of the world. And supply side shortages are happening wait times on anything that needs international shipping, and I mean shipping on boats by that point, are often double or more the time that they were at the beginning of the year. The cost of air freight has increased as passenger flight numbers have dwindled uh, and a lot of commercial freight gets stuffed into those commercial flights, fill the flight, get a better rate, fewer planes going, more expensive to get things shipped around the world. But the actual supply side, the creation, the manufacturing has not gone the way that it looked earlier on this year. To my surprise, to be quite honest, factories full of sick people all over the world have been reopening and in many cases, not even reopening at a reduced capacity. People are risking their lives going to work in these conditions. And we're not talking about strong armed countries like China and North Korea. We're talking about meat processing plants in the US or Victoria. We're talking about welders in a factory in the Midlands. These people are risking their lives because they need that paycheck. If you had hoped that the coronavirus recession would reverse the last three decades of widening wealth inequality, then the evidence so far and the two-track recovery that we're looking at would suggest not only is it not going to reverse that, it could actually make it worse. The businesses aren't shutting down because they want the financials and the employees are still showing up because they need the money. If something changes or if something has changed and we're just not seeing the full effect of that, then that will have a forced impact on the global economy. If you can't buy the things that you want to buy, then you can't spend that money. That money doesn't go into GDP. Economic indicator number three, and as always, because these last two economic indicators are lag indicators, we're going to spend less time on them. Unemployment rates. Now, if you thought I was unimpressed with what the UK is doing with their COVID-19 recovery and active case figures. Wait till you see what they're doing with the unemployment figures. 3.9% for the fourth consecutive month. Unemployment in the UK has stayed the same. Hasn't gone up since the pandemic kicked in. It might happen. Yeah, and monkeys might fly out of my butt. Let's dig into those numbers. So the official unemployment rate in the UK is and has been for the last four months, 3.9%, which is historically very, very impressive figure, let alone for a country that is in the deepest recession 
in 500 years. But let's dig a little bit deeper into those numbers. If we have a look at not the unemployment rate, but the actual employment numbers. In June of 2020, which is the latest UK figures we have, they take forever to give us their unemployment numbers. There were 32.9 million people employed. In February 2020, before the pandemic, there were 33.14 million people employed. I'll do the math. That's 220,000 fewer people who are working. But for some reason, even though they are not working because they are not ticking the right formal boxes to be unemployed, they're not counted in the official unemployment figure. They've dropped out of the labor force. Now, if we add those in, the, the change in, in people who are not employed, that bumps the unemployment rate from 3.9 to 4.2%. Still very, very impressive by historical standards and even by the five-year low that they were achieving in 2019. But hold your horses, dig even further. The UK is also reporting 300,000 people who are away from work because of the pandemic and received no pay in June. So these are people, if I'm correct in understanding, there are 300,000 people who didn't work, who didn't get paid, who weren't on any of the government programs. If I don't work and I don't get paid, I'm unemployed. But for some reason in the UK, I wouldn't be unemployed. Huzzah! I think we should still add those people into the numbers and that would jump the unemployment rate to 4.6%. Now we've talked before about the UK government, uh, their COVID-19 stimulus package, the furlough program, 7.5 million people currently, or as of June, on the furlough program in the UK. Uh, now, great program, great idea, paying people from the government direct to them to stop them from losing their jobs. But I wanna highlight just a subsection of that. There are 3 million people who have been away from their jobs for more than three months. They may be receiving some of the official furlough government program or some other government programs, but as the economy has picked up and as that program has eased off and employers have had to start contributing, there's 3 million people where the employers haven't actually gone in and contributed. So they have been away from their jobs for more than three months. The employers are not bringing them back on as they can. In any other environment, the boss saying, don't come back for at least three months would mean I'm unemployed. 2020 is a strange new world because the boss is promising them, look, if conditions improve next quarter, next year, 2022, then absolutely you can come back. I still want you to have that job. Because of that promise, technically, they still have a job. Technically, good thing for Boris that. Because if we add those 3 million people in, the unemployment rate in the UK would be about 9%, bringing it much more in line with what we've seen internationally. That's still well below where the US has gone, but keeping in mind that the US had a far less efficient and successful program for keeping people employed than the UK and Australia. Uh, and indeed, if we jump back, look at the US and the Australian numbers, the US numbers will be updated again this week as we come towards the end of summer, Happy Labor Day to my American viewers. 
We're expecting that number to decrease again slowly to continue that trend of moving down from that immediate freak out, uh, but slowing and still being quite high. Uh, the Australian unemployment figures were up only slightly uh, and uh, I've actually done a number of interviews over the past month talking about the success of the JobKeeper program in Australia, which will continue. Looking at the last indicator, GDP growth. The UK, since our last video, has announced the uh, June quarter annualised a decrease of over 20%, the worst quarterly figures in recorded history for the UK. The US has updated their figures. They've actually improved ever so slightly. Still, again, the worst ever. And Australia, uh, again, the newspapers today, if you still get your news from dead trees, are going to be all over the official report yesterday. Uh, Australia is officially in the recession we couldn't avoid. Though, remember, we had the Australian Treasurer on this program three months ago confirming that Australia was in the middle of a recession. So the two-track recovery when it comes to GDP growth covers two things, both your mindset and your understanding of some of these macroeconomic fundamentals and what they mean for your small and medium-sized business. The mindset piece is that the media is going to be all about the recession. Now, the recession in all three of those countries, many other countries around the world, the only exceptions being ones that went into it earlier, the recession ran from January to June. It's now September. The news media are gonna be pumping you full of the fear, the scare, all of the sadness of a recession. And yet recession, two consecutive quarters of negative GDP growth. If we look at that figure, you are now in September, two thirds of the way through the best ever quarter for GDP growth in history. The figures that are gonna come out for the current quarter that we are currently in are going to be astronomical. So mindset wise, two track recovery, which track are you choosing to take? Are you gonna focus on the official recession, particularly my Australian friends, first time in 30 years, welcome to the party, is it as bad as you thought? Or are you going to take the more positive mindset, which is, well, that's way ancient history now, particularly in the context of a business and a business that's responding to everything that 2020 throws at you. I'm gonna focus on the growth that's going on right now, the opportunity that is always in front of me. If that's your mindset, guess what? The results you achieve in your business are gonna be a heck of a lot better than the doom and gloom you might be seeing on the news today. Now. Best ever quarter for GDP growth does mean that people who misunderstand macroeconomic fundamentals are gonna start making some other mistakes. Best quarter, bounce back, all of these things, you're gonna be seeing them in uh, November, October in the US, 2nd of December in Australia, you'll get those news headlines. Um, bounce back, it does not mean, despite what the news may tell you then, a V-shaped recession. Let me explain. So you can see there, the chart we've got is GDP growth for the USA. Uh, and that you know, continual, it was the longest ever run of quarterly growth, uh, month, uh, quarter after quarter up the top of positive figures, and then uh, the dip in the March quarter and that plummet that we've experienced in the June quarter. GDP growth, or a negative growth rate, lack of growth, defines a recession, two consecutive quarters, but it doesn't define a recovery because that measure 
in the September quarter is going to be compared to the June quarter, the worst ever in history. So it is going to be an enormous growth figure for the September quarter in comparison to a ginormous plummet. Comparing the growth rates for a recovery does not tell you the, the proper story about what's actually happening in the economy. To look at what's actually happening in the economy, you can't look at GDP growth rates. You need to look at actual GDP. The actual figures though, not the growth as a percentage. That's what we're looking at here in the US. And you can see again, a decline and then the plummet in the June quarter. What we want to look at is what happens to the actual GDP amount, not the percentage growth. Because remember, looking at percentages, it, it, it's a little bit non-intuitive sometimes. Something A 33% decline, we've seen almost that annualized in the US, needs a 50% recovery to break even. You just can't go comparing apples to apples. If you look at the actual figures though, that's when you can see whether the recovery has caught back to where we were. The proponents, optimists who want a V-shaped recovery, that's what they're projecting. They want it to look like a V, which means that the total GDP of the country or that sector, whatever they might be looking at, gets back to those previous highs very, very quickly. Are we going to do that in the September quarter or are we going to see a more subdued return. It's going to be good growth as a percentage, but it's not going to necessarily go back and, and it will take us time to grow out of that. My conversations, commentary, research, what we've been talking about here through 18 editions of this economic snapshot is that we are not going to see that immediate V snap back. We're not going to see GDP growth in Australia, the UK, the US, uh, Hong Kong, wherever it might be, get back to those previous levels within one or two quarters. We are going to see a much slower, more gradual growth back to those figures. And if we look at that number, that is the L-shaped recession that we have been talking about. V-shape, very, very clear, it goes back, would mean that Really, by the December quarter, by Christmas of this year, the economy is as large as it was at the beginning of the year or larger. An L-shaped recession may not be as pessimistic as that shape that I've drawn there, but would suggest, as we've been talking about for some time, that it's going to be middle or late 2021 before we actually get back. Thanks for all your help this month, Pete. So in summary, how can you make sure if we are splintering, if we are having a two track recovery, how can you make sure you're on the fast track, the track that you want in your business? Well, three takeaways that you can have uh, from this month's conversation. First is don't get affected by the pandemic. Now, maybe that's a bit more about luck than about business planning. But the reality is when our six months into the pandemic, Either your business has survived, maybe it had some hard times and it's come through that, maybe it wasn't affected or it is affected in a positive way, or your business is stuffed. You really have got to the point where, despite all the stimulus packages, all the support, it's not going to work moving forward. Now, for me, both of those are fantastic. 
both of those situations where you've come through and you're okay or you're completely stuffed give you a lot of options for the next 18 months. That uncertainty of the response phase, that first three months of a recession, that's gone. You can now make decisions with confidence. And if you were affected, make decisions moving forward with confidence. Which gets us to the second of the three points. No matter how hard things are, remember that there are many people many businesses who are doing well right now. Your opportunity is to see how you can expose yourself to those businesses. If you're not yourself one of those businesses or industries that's in these stormy seas but in a reasonable size yacht that's nicely protected, how do you get yourself exposed to the benefits of those industries? And yes, that may mean reskilling, it may mean starting a different business temporarily or permanently. Again, that's the opportunity that you have in front of you. And the third and universal point, don't buy into the hype, don't buy into the news media, the doom and gloom that is out there. In March, all of that was misguided. The predictions were that this year, economically, the stock markets, all of those things are gonna be far worse than they've actually turned out to be. And even if that had been the case, there still would have been opportunities. If you buy into the doom and gloom, you're setting your filters up to only see more doom and gloom. When you walk into your business every day, you're going to see more doom and gloom. If you buy into the opportunity, if you accept that the rich are getting richer, but you have the opportunity to be part of that path, you're going to see the opportunities. And it all ultimately comes back to your business. It's not what Facebook or Netflix are doing. It's not what Donald Trump or Boris Johnson are doing or not doing. It's what's happening in your business, that circle of control and the circle of influence. How are your numbers? If you don't know what your numbers are, either watch that video, do that search for the coronavirus or recession, better business indicators, or reach out, send me an email, have a coffee, Zoom meeting, whatever it is that works for you to find out how you can get those numbers, take control, not accept the doom and gloom, and choose for yourself that if it is a two-tracked recovery, even if it's a lingering recovery for all of us, that you're getting the best out of what's in front of you.